0: took some time off from that to go back and teach this winter, so I taught from December through March and it was really great getting back in the classroom and getting in touch with the students again. I I love kids. I, I love students. There's something so exciting about the drama of being involved in helping shape and mold their lives and one of my kids told me a joke when I went back to, to school. And I'd like to share it with you this morning because these are the kinds of things that teachers have to put up with. This this kid came up to me says, Mr. Dowd, did did you hear the, the did you hear the story about the guy that didn't have any ears? I said, No. He says, Well there was this guy who didn't have any ears. And he was the boss of a large company and there were openings in the company for positions. So he was interviewing people for a job. And he calls in this young lady to interview for the job, and he's very impressed with her. And he's just about ready to offer her the position. And he looks at her and he says, I have just one question left to ask you. Do you notice anything different about me? And she looked at him and she says, well, yeah. You don't have any ears. And he said, yes, and you're very insensitive. I wouldn't hire you. Get out of here. (laughs) He calls in the next person to interview for the job, a young man. He's very impressed with him, just about ready to offer him the job. He looks at him and he says, "Uh, I have just one question left to ask you. Do you notice anything different about me? And the guy looked at him and he says, well, yeah. (laughs) You don't have any ears. And the boss said, yes, and you're very insensitive. I wouldn't think of hiring you. Get out of here. Calls in the next person to interview for the job. Once again, a very bright, articulate young lady. And he looks at her and he, he's interviewed her. He's very impressed with her. Just about ready to offer her the position. And he says to her, he says, uh, I have just one question left to ask you. Do you notice anything different about me? And she looks at him and she says, well, oh, yeah. <laughs> she says, you wear contacts. And he says, well, you're right. How could you tell? She says, well, you couldn't wear glasses. You don't have any ears. (laughs) My kids, I'll tell you. But when that student told me that joke, I was reminded of the true story, the true story about the little baby that was born without any ears. And all of a sudden, this pastor got a call from this man in his church. And The man said, Pastor, my wife and I, you know, we've been expecting our first child and our son was just born, but he doesn't have He has auditory openings, but he doesn't have the fleshly things that we call ears. And my wife hasn't seen the baby yet. Could you please come to the hospital and be here with me when the doctor and I, when we tell my wife that our son doesn't have any ears? And so the pastor went to the hospital immediately, and he, along with the the husband, And the doctor went in and they told the mother, you know, you have a very precious child, normal in every way, healthy, but he doesn't have any of these fleshly things that we call ears. But the doctor said, there's good news. When your son quits growing, when he reaches the age of maturity and he quits growing physically, we'll be able to find a donor who who will donate their ears. We'll get the ears from a cadaver. And then your son someday will be able to have ears. And of course, the parents didn't love their son any less. And he grew up and he lived a rather normal life, except that he always felt that people stared at him. And he always felt that people made fun of him. And even though... You know, oftentimes it wasn't necessarily overt. He sensed it inside that he just wasn't normal. And his parents told him, well, someday, son, when you quit growing, we'll find a donor and you'll have ears like everybody else. The young man graduated from high school. He moved away to go to college, to a college in the Midwest. And after his first year of college, actually during his first year of college, his father called him and he said, son, have wonderful news. We finally have found a donor and the operation will take place in June. The young man was excited. He hadn't even really been, he didn't feel like he could even date because he didn't think that any girl would be interested in him without without ears and he thought well maybe now my life will be just a little bit more normal It'll be a lot more normal and and so he couldn't wait till June and he went home he had the surgery and he went right, right after the surgery he recovered a little bit and then he went back to the town that his college was in because he had a job there and he wasn't back there more than than a few weeks and his father called again and his father said son you have to come home right away Mom has had a heart attack and they don't think she's going to make it. And he caught the next flight home. And he got there, it was too late. His mom had died. And his father picked him up at the airport and they went right to the mortuary. And they went into the, the funeral home where his mother was already in the casket, his mother's body. And his father grabbed his hand and held it tightly. They walked up to the casket and the dad looked at his son and he said, son, you'll never know how much your mother loved you. And then reaching down into the casket his dad brushed away mom's long hair. And all of a sudden, the young man saw that his mother didn't have any ears. That's a true story. And you know, that's the Jesus I know. That's the God I know. Who loved us so much that he gave us so much more than just his ears. And that's the God I want my students to know. That's the Jesus whose love and forgiveness and grace I want them to know. But I see these kids. A hundred and fifty of them a day. That come into my classroom. And my heart is tremendously burdened for them. There's a verse, First Peter 5, 8. It says, be on guard, be on the alert. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if Satan were to figure out the best way to eat kids up and spit them out, how would he do it? And I see it happening in the lives of my high school kids. You know how Satan does it? Number one, he takes away their self-worth. Takes away their self-worth. Oh, we hear so much about self-esteem and self-worth. I see these kids and my heart goes out for them because there are so many people and there are so many lessons that they're learning that tell them that they're not okay. And of course they're not. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. But there is grace and there is forgiveness. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And I want my kids to know this Jesus who gave so much more than just his ears. My first year as a teacher, it's homecoming time. And we've just crowned the homecoming king and the homecoming queen. And we have the seven male attendants and the seven female attendants. We call them the royal court. And we put on a, a tea for them, a reception. It's called the royal tea for the royalty. <laughs> and here I am as student council advisor. I'm help, helping serve cake and coffee and punch. And, and I look up and here's this beautiful senior girl, gorgeous girl, who's in my class. And she looks at me. She says, Mr. Dowd, can I talk with you for a minute? I said, sure. So we walk outside in the courtyard of our building, and we sit down. She says, you're, you're really going to think this is, this is dumb. But I really wanted to be one of the homecoming queen candidates. You know, my sister, she was homecoming queen a couple years ago. And my father, my, my father's always comparing me to my sister. And I just, I never match up. And I just thought that if I could be one of the homecoming queen candidates, that maybe it would make my father proud of me. Maybe he wouldn't drink so much. See, my dad, he's an alcoholic. He's been to treatment, but he's back to drinking again. And I just thought that if I could be homecoming queen, maybe my dad wouldn't drink so much. I just reached over and I grabbed her hand. I said, that that's not stupid. But What did she learn? She learned that she wasn't homecoming queen material. And it was a lesson that hurt her. And oh, how Satan loves to come along and fill us with the lessons of the world that tell us we don't measure up, that we're not as good as somebody else. My wife and I helped our our children, you know, went out and bought clothes for them to start school with this year. Picked out some new tennis shoes and things like that. And after the first day of school, my second oldest son, Luke, he comes home. And he says, I don't like my tennis shoes. I said, well, why? They're the ones you wanted. You like them. He says, I want pumps. Now, here he is, a little seven-year-old kid with ankles this big, you know. He just needs pumps, high top tennies, you know, to support those ankles, which have a hard strain under all that weight, you know. He- But all the ways that Satan comes along and says, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, and he compares you to other people, and you always fall flat on your face, you're no good. Takes away your self-worth. Do you know that every 38 seconds, an adolescent girl becomes pregnant? oftentimes for the reason of trying to find their self-worth in fulfillment with someone else. And you'll always end up feeling empty when you look to other people to satisfy your longings. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy that longing. Only Jesus Christ can make us whole. Only Jesus Christ can make us complete. Every 38 seconds, an adolescent girl becomes pregnant. Every 30 seconds a teenager attempts suicide. Every 70 minutes they succeed. One out of 13 children in this country are physically or sexually abused. And they come to the schools of America. Dear ones, I've been criticized for being a, a public school teacher. People have said, how can you be a Christian and be a public school teacher? That breaks my heart that Christians can be so short-sighted. The bottom line is that 90% of the kids in this country are going to go to the public schools. And we cannot abdicate or absolve ourselves of our responsibility if we care for people to try to make those schools just as good as we possibly can. And I'm a tremendous supporter of Christian education. But the bottom line is that your tax dollars, my tax dollars, are going to go to public education. About 90% of the kids are going to go to public schools. One of the verses that haunts me, that I'm going to come back to, Matthew 25, 40. And if you realize the context in which this verse is, it's even more haunting. Jesus only gives us one view of what the judgment day is going to be like and it's Matthew 25 and, he, and he's talking and he says I was hungry and I was sick and I was in prison and you didn't feed me you didn't clothe me you didn't come visit me and we're going to say well Lord when were you ever any of those things and he said whatever you do to the least of these my brethren so you do unto me I had a friend in college. His name was Rick. He was from California. He was suspect because he was from California. <laughs> kind of a surfer dude. He was also suspect because he had a beard. And I was quick to say, you know, shouldn't have a beard. You can't be a good witness for Christ and have a beard. That's where I was coming from at that time. And he had a poster in his room of Jesus. Well, here's what the poster was. It wasn't Jesus, but it was kind of like Jesus. And it made me so mad. Because the poster was a picture of a drunk lying in the gutter, empty whiskey bottle by his side, unkept, disheveled, And the poster read, You love Jesus only as much as the person you love the least. Matthew 25, 40. I looked up that verse. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. Is that what that verse means? You only love Jesus Christ as much as the person you love the least. You see, not only did I hate sin, I hated sinners. You love Jesus, and I see these kids. I growing up and I went to church. I sang jesus loves me this i know for the bible tells me so but where was he where was this jesus that i was singing about where was he you know i I weighed i got up to weigh over 300 pounds i was miserable inside i was singing about jesus i was praying to jesus but I, i wanted to see a demonstration of jesus I actually began to practice self-flagellation. I beat myself up and down on my leg until I had big welts. And then I took thumbtacks and I pressed them into my leg. Some of you are saying, how in the world could you do that? Hey, dear ones, we grow up and we become adults. We just find more subtle ways sometimes of abusing ourselves. Workaholism is one And they pat you on the back for it and they give you a plaque for it. They say, attaboy, good job, way to go. Keep it up. Things that come along to try to take away the abundance and the joy that Jesus Christ has intended for us takes away our self-worth. And then, you know, our devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, you know how else he likes to do it? Secondly, he likes to take away the family. The destruction of the home. Do you know that I lived in central Minnesota, rural Minnesota, which you'd think of as being the bastion of rural values and rural ideals. And yet we're now told that only four out of ten people in our county live in what was once considered a traditional American family with a mom and a dad who love each other, who love God, who make Jesus the center of their home, and they love their children. I'm outside on hall duty. It's Friday. It's the last hour of the day. You see, since I really believe I only love Jesus as much as the person I love the least, this kid coming down the hall that the other kid's called Dirtball, He's a party animal. He got caught making a bong in pottery class. <laughs> got a roach clip earring, you know. Got his little Visine bottle that he. Here he is coming down the hall. I say, what are you gonna do this weekend? He says, party hardy. As he comes into my class, I can tell he's real excited about studying split infinitives. Here comes this kid, Sean. Hi, Sean. Sean doesn't talk much. Hi. What are you gonna do this weekend, Sean? going to see my mom. Oh, well, don't you get to see your mom very often? No, I haven't seen her in nine years. She deserted us as he comes into my room. And you see, just like I needed a Jesus with skin on, the call to the marketplace calls you and me who love Jesus to go out into the world and be a Jesus with skin on I came to know Jesus Christ because of the ministry of a public school teacher who discipled me he was my Jesus with skin on he cared, he cared enough to come to my home. And I hoped he didn't notice the, the screen door hanging by one hinge. And I hoped he didn't notice the hole in the linoleum floor. But he didn't seem to care about holy floors. He cared about me. He cared about my family. He invited me to go to a gospel concert with he and his fiance. And then there's this movie that came to town called The Restless Ones, put out by the Billy Graham Association, Worldwide Pictures. And he says, you want to go to the movie with me, Guy? I said, sure. Here I hear big fat old Guy Dow going in the movie with Mr. Kopka. And I'm sitting there at that movie. It's about a bunch of motorcycle kids. And I said, boy, I sure don't have anything in common with those kids. And as the movie went along, I I realized I was just as lost as they were. And I was just as much in need of Jesus' saving grace. And I responded at the end of that movie, went forward and gave my life to Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, life started to make a little sense. But Satan loves to take away your self-worth. He loves to take away the family. I walked into class one day, and I said, and uh, my kids, I I joke with them a lot, and I talk with them a lot, and uh, I didn't start dating until after I lost 127 pounds after one of my students told me I'd be kind of cute if I lost 100. And uh, for a while there, I thought, kind of cute? Why bother, you know? But... I started dating, and I dated the same girl for four years before we decided to get married. And once we decided to get married, I thought our parents should meet each other and approve of our upcoming nuptials. I'm old-fashioned in that way. and My father was widowed, and her mother was divorced and had been for many years. And so I invited my dad and her mom to my house. And I made my roast beef, potatoes, and carrots, and gravy dinner. And my girlfriend, Tammy, she brought a pie and our parents hit it off. (laughs) And so Tammy and I were married in June, and our folks were married in August. (laughs) Which means... If you stop and think about it for a minute, and I I know that there are several of you from Iowa here, it takes you longer than a minute, but... uh, (laughs) you stop and think about that for a minute, that made my father my father-in-law, my mother-in-law is my stepmother, my wife is my stepsister, and uh, these two sons of ours are our nephews. (laughs) And four years ago now, we had our first niece, (laughs) and uh, a year ago, January, we had another nephew. And it's all legitimate. <laughs> but I walk into my class and I, I tell this, my students about my kids because I love them. They're so funny. I still struggle with a weight problem, but I, God loves me. And he loves me. And uh, boy, that I don't have to abuse myself anymore. Jesus did that on the cross for me. When he gave so much more than just his ears. He who knew no sin took upon himself the iniquity of us all. He died on that tree, yet made the hill on which it stood for me, for you. And so I go into class and I tell my kids, I say, Now, Mr. Dowd's kids are the cutest kids in the whole world. Repeat after me. (laughs) Mr. Dowd's kids, that wasn't very good, are the cutest kids... In the whole world. world. Very good, very good. You'll pass. Those of you that didn't say anything, uh, you'll get, you'll flunk. But I say, you know, every night before my wife and I go to bed, and before we put the kids to bed, we pray with them. And I hope the day never comes when they don't want to pray with us. And then when we go to bed, we pray for them. And, you know, tell you quite honestly, if there's one thing that I sometimes worry about, and I don't like to worry, but I worry about my kids growing up. It's more than just concern on my part. I worry. I'm worried that some of them are going to turn out to be like you. (laughs) And they know I'm kidding, at least partly. I said, no, now, come on, be honest with me. What do I need to do to be a good parent? And all the kids start talking. And the things I hear. This one kid says, Mr. Dodd, spend time with your kids. He says, my dad's always telling everybody, he travels all the time, he's always telling everybody how he doesn't have much time to spend with us, but the time that he spends with us is quality time. time. And he said, I'd kind of like some quantity time. I really don't think there's any quality without some quantity. Nothing will convince your children that you love them more than you choose to hang out with them. And so I I listened to my kids. And then one day I said, would you do me a favor? I'd like you, you know, what are the problems that you guys face today? Uh, Jennifer, will you come on up here? Would you write them on the board? And you guys just just shout them out, will you? And all of a sudden they started getting along with parents, making a career decision, doing well in school, uh, peer pressure, drug and alcohol problems, sexual pressure. We just filled the board with all of these things and challenges that students are facing. I said, now, will you please take one of those things that's up there on the board and will you write about it? I want you to, uh, don't put your name on the paper because I'm going to read these to the class and I'm not trying to be a snoop and try to find out who you are but would you please write about one of those things and tell me how it's had an impact on your life and I'm going to read them remember so the kids did it and they handed them in and I started reading them I read a couple remember this boy his name was John he wrote I sit in my room with my headphones on he wrote And this is how I know it was John. He didn't have his name on the paper. But he told me later that it was his paper alone in my room with my headphones on. And I listen to my music. And I get high. He says, my folks don't know that I smoke either. He says, I really would like to be able to talk to my dad and to my mom. But I graduate this year and I don't think I'll ever be able to talk to them. Things are never going to get much better." John, two weeks later, put a gun to his head and he killed himself. And then I came across this paper, I've carried it around for Five years now and it's ripped in half but this young man wrote his name across the top in great big letters maybe he wanted me to know who he was I saw his name on this paper and I Ooh, he's flunking my class he's not here very often when he is here he's often sleepy and no matter how what I try to do to get his attention I can't seem to get him interested I can't motivate this kid what's wrong with me what's wrong with him and so all of a sudden I start reading his his paper he says One problem I've seen is the abuse of drugs, mainly alcohol. My family's been plagued with problems relating to drinking. My brother started drinking when they were young and their grades were not very good. They usually drank quite a bit when they were in high school. They all dropped out before graduating or they went to the alternative school. A few years later, three of them had jobs and one was unemployed. Two of them worked in the Deep South doing construction And one worked in the cities as a machinist in a defense plant. One day while I was at work, I went out. I had some visitors. I went out and said hello. It was two older men, friends of my dad. They told me that I had to leave work right away for a family emergency. I didn't ask no questions. I just changed my clothes and headed for the car. As we were heading for the car, one of them spoke up and said that something had happened to my brother, the one in the cities. I asked if he was all right, and he just turned to me and he said, your brother's dead. He died in a car accident. The shock never hit me. Even for a week, I never felt the shock. Even at his funeral, I never felt the shock. About two days after his funeral, my dad decided to get a divorce. If the fact that my brother's death isn't enough on my mom, I might mention that my dad drinks very heavily. After that, my mom started to drink. I'm watching her decay before my eyes. The other day, I told her what I saw, and I told her that she's got to stop, and that if she continues, she's going to kill herself. Several weeks later, we got the doctor's report back from the examiner. I found out that my brother was drunk at the time of his accident. It was a head-on collision, and the steering wheel pushed into his chest and pulled the big arteries from his heart by the roots. It's too bad that something like that has to happen to make people realize what they're doing to themselves and others. Maybe if people would take a hold of something solid like faith in Christ, maybe then and only then will the troubles of our time be solved? Those are his words. And by the time I finished reading that, there were tears streaming down my face, and everybody knew whose paper it was. I looked over at him, and I said, Wayne, I said, I am so sorry. I had no idea that all of this was going on in your life. After class, he told me, he says, you know, Mr. Dowd, he says, you, like, I I know I'm flunking my class, and you don't like me very much. I'm flunking your class. He says, well, like last night, he says, you know, since my dad left home, he says, I'm, it's just my mom and I left on the farm. And he said, so I have to do all the farm chores myself. He said, like last night, he said, they called me from the Blue Ox. That's a bar in downtown Brainerd. He said, they told me my mom had passed out, and I had to come into town and pick her up and bring her home. He says, you know, we live 27 miles out in the country. And by the time I got her and got her home and put her to bed, it was time to get up and do chores. So I'm sorry. I'm sleepy in your class. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brother, So you do unto me. The call to the marketplace is to go out into the world and to be a Jesus with skin on. And the public school is a marvelous place to do that because you have a chance to mold and shape lives. Maybe if people would take a hold of something solid. I coach debate and speech, and I travel with my debate team. And we stay in lots of hotels, which is always interesting. And the kids love to watch MTV. I remember walking in on this group of high school kids of mine. They're sitting there watching MTV. And John Bon Jovi was on. His latest album had just come out, Living in Sin. And here's this music video... Of John Bon Jovi, I don't know the name of the song, I don't want to know the name of the song, but he's just wailing away on his guitar and the kids are screaming down in the front and two of these kids, two of these girls hold up a sign that says, John, I will die for you. what a testimony it is just to look out and see such young men and women as yourselves dedicated to the cause of Christ and by your lives you're saying Jesus I'm going to live for you that's contrary to the world and that's why we need to go out in the world And tell people about that Jesus that loves them so. But Satan comes along, takes away the self-worth, takes away the family, and finally what he loves to do is take away their faith. Likes to take away the faith. Do you know, how many of you, I'm just anxious to do a little poll here, How many of you became Christians before the age of 21? It's always that way whenever I ask. I read the other day that 90% of the people that become Christians become Christians before the age of 21. Now, if you're a mathematical genius like I am, You can figure it out that that means only about 10% of the people become Christians after the age of 21. What does that say about these early years? That's why many people, you know, uh, send their children to Christian schools. That's why more and more people are, Christians are homeschooling their children. Because what happens at that early age is so essential. So vitally important to have that foundation on which you build a life. And Satan comes along, tries to take away the self worth, the family, and take away the faith. And that's why we need you folk to go out there, that call to the marketplace, and be those Christians with skin on. Because of Mr. Kopka and other teachers that made a tremendous difference in my life. Oh, I had some rotten experiences in school. Before I actually got to the point where I was beating myself, uh, one of my worst experiences, and I always have to tell this story or I get scolded if I don't. One of my worst experiences, here I was, super fat, and I had to take gym class in seventh grade. I'd never undressed in front of anybody before. And I was very self-conscious about my weight. All my life, my mother had said, Guy, hold your stomach in. And I'd become good at holding it in, you know. And all of a sudden, everything I'd been holding was going to, you know. And so I thought, oh, no, I've got to take gym class. I remember lying awake all summer long thinking, i got to take gym class. I gotta... There was a streetlight outside our window, and I used to look out at that streetlight. i got to take gym class. i got to take gym class. Finally, a letter came home from the school. If you have a son in gym class, he's going to need the following. We're the Staples Cardinals, right? Red and white, dynamite. Onward, Cardinals, to victory. We're behind you in this fray. Do your best and we'll do the rest by cheering all the way. Yay, team, fight! Going to need a pair of, yeah, white, yay, Cardinals, yeah. Going to need a pair of white gym shoes, the letter said. Going to need a pair of white gym shoes, white gym socks, red gym shorts, that other thing, and a white T-shirt. Didn't have any of those things. So my mom went to bachelor's department store, bought those things for me. Finally, that first day of gym class came, that long, dreaded first day. I didn't sleep the whole night ahead of time, and so I walked into my gym locker room, which was in the basement of the school, a dungeon-like place with my little bag, you know, with my stuff in it. And then to make matters even worse, I had a gym teacher who had just gone back into teaching... After finishing 20 years in the Marines <laughs> as a drill instructor, he'd heard about seventh graders, and he wasn't going to let us get the best of him. So he came into class that first day. He says, "All right, listen up. I'm going to issue your lock. I'm going to give you the combination to your lock. So you get combination to your lock. I'm going to write it across your forehead in magic marker. start. And guess who forgot the combination to his lock? I didn't need to go run laps. The sweat was just pouring out of me, you know. So here I am reaching in my... He says, all right, get changing your gym clothes on the double. Here I am reaching in my bag, taking out my shoes and my shorts and my socks and my shirt. And that other thing. I'd never seen one of those before. It said... Bike on the box. <laughs> I took it out and I looked at it. Didn't look anything like a bike. Looked more like a slingshot. I thought, well, what in the world do I do with this thing? I stood embarrassed to look over at Steve and see how he was putting his on. Well, you know what I did? I did something that I think is very logical for a non-logical person. I looked at that thing and I said, well, you know, the tags, the tags on things always go in the back. How do you girls know about that? Well, I no more and had it on, I knew something was wrong. It was called a supporter, and I couldn't figure it out. So now I'm looking over, it's... Oh! That's how it goes. Well, I was too embarrassed to take it all the way off and call even more attention to myself, so I thought maybe I'd just twist it around. So here I am trying to twist it around when all of a sudden my gym teacher sees me. Look at this. Look at this, everybody. He doesn't even know how to put on a jockstrap. And everybody looked. And everybody laughed. But that was before Mr. Kopka. And that was before I met Jesus Christ. And because of Mr. Kopka and the involvement of other teachers who cared for me, who were Jesus with skin on for me, I went on to college. I decided in eighth grade, I want to be a teacher. I want to give back what my teachers have given me. Like that song by Ray Bolts, you know, thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. I graduated from college. I got a job teaching in Brainerd, Minnesota. And on April 14, 1986, I had the unbelievable honor of being invited into the Oval Office to meet the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. He'd kept me waiting for over an hour and a half because he was lining up the bombing of Libya. And the first thing I said to him when I saw him is I said, Sir, I don't appreciate being kept waiting. That's a lie. I didn't say that. <laughs> I came into the Oval Office and the President held out his hand. And he says, I saw you on Good Morning America this morning. That impressed me. And then he quoted me. He said, when you said you don't teach English your speech, or world literature but you teach students you teach kids he says well that (laughs) that reminded me of those teachers I had when I was growing up and then he reached into the vest pocket of his coat and he pulled out a piece of his individualized note card stationery, gold embossed presidential seal his name across the top you know, so he could remember. (laughs) And on it was a poem. He's a great guy. A poem written out in his own handwriting, which is unheard of. He said, I came across this poem back during my Iowa days. And better than anything else I've ever read, he said, it explains just how important all you people are that work with kids especially you teachers. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to read it to you. And I said, go ahead. (laughs) That's a lie. (laughs) And the poem uses the word gods, gods, and it's with a little g. But quite frankly, in the lives of young kids, in fact, in the lives of some adults, we might be the only Jesus they ever know. And there's a verse of scripture that I've come to just love from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, But with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Your life is a letter that everybody's reading, and it's being written on the tablet of somebody's heart by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Wow! What an awesome responsibility. Your life's a letter. You are all molders of dreams. Every one of you is a teacher. Parents are the greatest teachers of all. So the president held the poem, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, teachers, you are the molders of their dreams, the gods who build or crush their young beliefs of right and wrong. You are the spark that sets aflame the poet's hand or lights the flame of some great singer's song. You are the god of the young, the very young. You are the guardian of a million dreams. Your every smile or frown can heal or pierce a heart. Yours are a hundred lives, a thousand lives. Yours the pride of loving them and the sorrow too. Your patient work, your touch, make you the gods of hope who fill their souls with dreams to make those dreams come true when he finished reading it there were tears coming down my face and my and then the president saw that i was moved that moved him and when i saw that he was moved that moved me more it was a very moving moment and then he looked at me says well i wrote this out in kind of a hurry if you don't mind my chicken scratches you can have this his own handwriting that's i took i couldn't Improper punctuation. (laughs) You know what, I'd read two weeks earlier that his signature alone was worth $66. So I started counting the words, you know. (laughs) But molders of dreams, that's what y'all are. And I couldn't help but think as we walked out of the Oval Office, all of a sudden the reality of what had happened began to hit me. My legs started to shake. My wife, who's always the perpetual joker, turns to me and she says, while he was reading that poem to you, I got a really good ashtray off his desk. (laughs) And I said, what? So I'm kidding. But when the reality hit me that I'd been in the Oval Office and I'd met the President of the United States, I couldn't help but think of what it was going to be like someday to meet him face to face. And to hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've gone out into the marketplace. And you've been a Jesus with skin on. Well done. You've been a molder of dreams. Your life has been a letter written on the tablets of hearts by the Holy Spirit. Well done. One story and a little something else and then I close. It was Christmas Eve. My wife and my family and I had been to church. we had a beautiful communion service and we came home and i started a fire in the fireplace and had some carols on the on the stereo and the snow was gently falling outside it was like a norman rockwell painting minnesota so beautiful so beautiful I won't say anything else it's just really beautiful and the snow was falling and i sat there looked at my wife looked at my kids overcome with this sense of joy the reality of God's gift to us at Christmas, his gift of himself when he gave so much more than just his ears. And I was watching my children who were all excited about this evening. And they were opening a couple of gifts. And Jessica, who was seven months old at the time, had opened a package. She didn't care at all about what was in the package. She was just having so much fun with the wrapping paper. So the following year, all we got her was wrapping paper. <laughs> And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there and, and just feeling the awesomeness of God and his gifts to me and his gifts to us and to one another. And the telephone rang. ding a ling a ling a ling a ling 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 I said to Tammy, I bet that's Aunt Renee. I have an aunt that lived in, in Santa Ana, California. Every Christmas Eve, she'd call. So I said, I bet that's Aunt Renee. So I walked over, and I picked up the phone. And I said, Merry Christmas, Dowds. Is this Mr. Dowd? Yes, this is Guy. Guy Dowd. Who's this? Chris. Do you remember me? I thought, Chris? How many Chrises have I known over the years? I said, Chris. I said, well, could you? He must have been a student. Could you help me out a little bit, Chris? What's your last name? He says, Johnson. And in Minnesota, that helps a lot, John. I said, Johnson, John. Well, what year did you graduate, Chris? He says, I never graduated. Remember? I was in your basic English class, and I dropped out. You tried to talk me into staying in school, but I dropped out anyway. I basic English. I only taught that my very first year as a teacher, way back in 1975. I said, boy, you've been out of school a long time, Chris. He says, Yeah. Then there was just silence on the phone. What are you doing, Chris? He says, well, I'm in Stillwater in the penitentiary here. They told us that we could make one phone call tonight. My folks, they don't want anything to do with me. You were always my favorite teacher. You always seemed to care. So I just wanted to call and wish you a Merry Christmas, Mr. Dowd. But I didn't even remember the kid. Go out into the marketplace and be a Jesus with skin on for kids like my kids. If you were in my class, I come in the last day, and I, I've told you that I love you, and I even hug my students. That makes me really suspect, especially with the hockey players. <laughs> but they've come to know that I'm sincere, and I say, You know, you're going to walk out those doors, and I'm never going to see some of you again. And yet, when you leave, you're going to take a part of me with you, and you've left a part of yourself with me. And I just want you to know I love you. And so I can't let you go without sharing with you my wish for your life. And if you promise not to laugh, I'd like to do it in the form of a song. Now, hey, I I realize I'm not Bruce Springsteen or Michael Jackson or Billy Joel or Huey Lewis or, you know, uh, David Lee Roth. Thank goodness. But this song was written by a guy who grew up real close to here, up in Hibbing, and he, a guy by the name of Bob Dylan. And he wrote this song for his children to express his wish for their life. And it also expresses my wish for your life. So before you leave, I'd, I'd like to share it with you. My wish for you, forever young. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. Hey, that's the golden rule. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung. May you stay forever young, forever young. Forever young. The other teachers are slamming their doors. <laughs> May you stay forever young. May your hands always be busy. May your feet always be swift. May I have that firm foundation when the winds of change is shift. May your heart always be joyful. May your song always be sung. May you stay forever young, forever young. righteous may you grow up to be true may you always know the truth and feel God's love surrounding you may you always be courageous stand upright and be strong may you stay forever young for ever young, for. Oh.